We all know that this is a song by Stevie Wonder, but our question to you is, who's performing it and where? At a wedding or a bat mitzvah? Or maybe a sweet 16 or graduation party? None of the above. But here's a hint. If you happen to know where you can find 24 different kinds of food on a stick, then you can take a good guess. That, or you can just keep listening to ReSound. Welcome to ReSound, a collection of audio stories from around the world curated by the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxai. Tonight, we bring you two stories, a conversation, and a sneak peek into the world of butter carving. First up, Confessions of a Child Beauty Queen. Is there life after pageantry? Then, Dumpsters in New York. Who knew dumpster diving could be so delectable? And we'll answer the question on everyone's mind, just who is Princess Kay of the Milky Way? So come, take a break, take a ride, take a listen. There's a show on KALW in San Francisco called Invisible Inc. The show's producer, Roman Mars, trolls San Francisco's underground literary scene, not for future blockbusting bestsellers or for the next movie of the week, but for stories he just loves and thinks will make great radio. This is one of his favorites. It's called Confessions of a Child Beauty Queen, written and read by A.H. Weatherman. A word of warning, this piece contains mature material that may be inappropriate for younger listeners. Confession I was a child beauty queen, something like a second-rate Jean Benet, if she had lived. Some of my titles in the 1970s were Our Little Miss, Miss Cinderella, Miss La Petite, Miss Sunshine, in Miss Charlotte Mecklenburg County. My handicap was the talent competition. My strength was and no longer is my picture-perfect looks. I placed first in any special smile competition, Miss Sunshine Smile, for example. I was Miss Photogenic in most pageants, even if I didn't become queen. My pageant career spanned about six years, from age four to age 10. During that time, I amassed over 100 trophies, countless crowns, tiaras, banners, scepters, chiffon dresses, and patent leather shoes. This collection used to be spread out across the attic in the house where I grew up, but my family has since split up and moved and the collection disappeared. I imagine it was slowly eaten by moths, termites, heat, and mildew, eventually suffocating in its own must. Like many ex-beauty queens, including Delta Burke, I am fat. I am not gorgeous, famous, or rich like Delta Burke, but I am fat, and I did live in New Orleans for a while. Maybe it's true what they say about us. We're a bunch of overindulged has-beens, sitting on floral sofas, eating bonbons, reminiscing about our moments of glory. Or maybe being fat is related to something else. 
like being forced to stand in a line of other seven-year-olds in bathing suits, wedge heels, and buttered legs to be scrutinized by a panel of middle-aged judges. Or learning at age five that being a perfect lady means being demure, passive, still, helpful, and always smiling. Or standing disoriented under hot lights on a stage with a hundred other four-year-olds and giant replicas of Cinderella's coach and glass slipper. Or changing clothes backstage in front of countless strangers. Or simply the single trauma of doing somersaults on stage in a red satin bodysuit with white fringe to the tune of all that jazz. Perhaps, too, we ex-beauty queens share some other related experience found in families where mothers turn their daughters into sexual objects at a young age. Whatever the case may be, I can say with certainty that had Jean Benet not been object-raped and murdered in the basement of her own home on Christmas morning, she would be fat in the year 2020, or dead from a heroin overdose, or a sex worker, or a therapist or a writer, but it's unlikely she would have made it out of her house alive anyway. The Miracle Pill My mother drives a Mercedes-Benz. It is her second Mercedes-Benz. Her first Mercedes-Benz was repossessed, as were her Lexus and her BMW. It's not easy to repossess a car from my mother. She senses when someone is coming and she hides her car until it's safe. She's frustrating to collect from. The Mercedes-Benz she drives now won't be repossessed because she bought it with cash and uncontained delight. She felt like a sultan's wife at the Mercedes-Benz dealership when she told them, Money is no object. I'll be paying in cash. This fountain of monetary resources was available to her through a class action lawsuit against a popular diet pill. Taking this diet pill gave her two heart attacks and made her fatter than ever. She had the first heart attack on my brother's birthday, less than one year after my father died of a drug and alcohol-induced heart attack. My mother and her Finn friends, as they call themselves, correspond daily in an AOL chat room. After they got their money, they went on cruises together, traveled to Mexico where you can buy many prescription-only drugs over the counter, and they'll be meeting in Las Vegas this fall. On one of the cruises, my mother's cabin mate died before they were able to set sail. My mother had the room to herself the entire cruise. My mother explains that different ones of them have problems that will never go away. Aside from my mother's heart condition, she also suffers from the drug's neurotoxicity. She proudly tells her children that she has brain damage and that this explains the forgetfulness, the apathy, the contradictory behavior we've seen in her our whole lives. My mother's new Mercedes-Benz is in a color called Merlot. When she says this word, she uses what she imagines might be a French accent. It's the way she says any word when she wants to convey an air of sophistication. She says California in this tone as well, for this is the state of movie stars, distance, a thousand miles of faraway coastline, and dreams. 
Playboy. It was almost exactly one year ago that my mother came from North Carolina to visit me in San Francisco. She spent one month here, blowing through her diet pill settlement faster than you can say, easy come, easy go. I appreciated her visit, but never understood her motives, aside from a general starstruck love of the state of California, until the last night she was here. We were lying in a bed together at her 18th Bay Area Hotel, this one a Marriott courtyard by the airport, when she asked me, Have you ever thought that maybe your grandfather touched you? Why, I asked. Well, I know that you and Lily for a while were saying that your dad touched you. I had never said that, but for a long time she had been insisting that dad didn't touch me. That story had changed on this trip. Last week you told me that he got in bed drunk and naked with me sometimes. My mother looked at me like I was silly. Oh, you're not still thinking about that, are you? I don't think he could have done anything. I mean, when he was drunk, he couldn't... You know, I mean, he wouldn't have been able to. I changed the subject. Why are you asking me about Papaw? I mean, that's sort of a strange question. Well, I mean, I was just wondering. I know he liked little girls. Mom, everyone likes little girls. What are you trying to say? Well, I shouldn't have even said anything. You misinterpret things all the time. I just asked because you were always saying you were sexually abused. I never said that, but you were always saying that I wasn't. I knew reminding her of this wouldn't have any effect. Well, were you? Do you remember something? I didn't, really, except sitting in his lap in his big red chair on the back porch and him telling me, You know you're my favorite, don't you? And weird things used to happen in that house. Like the time I slept on the cot in the main bedroom and woke up screaming because I thought someone was throwing my legs up and down. And when I used to stay there in summer, I could never sleep because I kept thinking I was hearing screaming babies and animals that no one else could hear. No, but frankly, Mom, I've wondered for a long time if Papa molested you when you were little. No. Why would you think that? She was incredulous. Just some things about you. I mean, I know you went through a hard time with Dad, but it almost seems like there was something before that. The way you forget everything. No, no. The only thing I remember happening was with... Well, there's no need to go into that. I could tell this was another pocket of consciousness that would be closed off for the time being. But Papaw never touched you? Well, no. He didn't like me like he liked some of the other girls. I asked her what she meant by that and who she was talking about. Well, he just liked them. He'd have them over. Girls from the neighborhood. I had this one friend, Darla... He really liked her. He liked her more than he liked me. He would want her to come over all the time. And then he liked her sister, too, but her sister was a little older. 
How old were you and Darla? I really can't remember, honey. Well, what would they do when they came over? Just sit on his lap, mostly. He really just liked to be around them. He liked to look at them. I told you, he liked pretty little girls. My mother was beginning to sound like an overly sophisticated six-year-old, and it was scaring me. Mom, I don't understand what you mean. Well, I remember just thinking. I know some men like Playboy. My daddy just likes little girls. I thought I was going to throw up. But I had to keep her talking. Mom, he must have been molesting those girls. And possibly you too. She laid her head back down on the pillow. Let's just stop talking about it. There's no use. I didn't even mean to bring it up. Let's just go to sleep. I wasn't going to sleep. I didn't want to upset her, but I knew it was likely to be the last time she ever mentioned it. Is this the first time you've ever talked about this, Mom? Well, there's nothing really to talk about. My daddy just liked little girls, and he had his favorites, and I wasn't one of them. Her voice had returned to its standard resigned lull. She was fading and my access to the vault quickly coming to an end. Why did you ask me if I thought he ever touched me? I just thought maybe you thought he did, that's all. I was a pretty little girl after all. Made prettier by my mother's primping and dressing me like a doll and putting makeup on me and putting me in beauty pageants. Do you remember him touching me? No, no, no. Nothing like that. I don't think he did anything. I know he never had intercourse with you. One exclusion. That leaves a lot of other possibilities. I was so angry I wanted to kill her. Right then. But I kept my cool because I knew by morning she would slip back into amnesia and deny ever having said any of it. I had to get the facts. What did he do? I told you, I don't think he ever did anything. He never would have abused you. A man who likes little girls like other men like Playboy would most likely abuse any child he had access to. I felt frustrated and angry like one would be with a child who kept walking out into traffic. No, not abuse. The only thing he would have ever done is pleasure himself. I was nauseous and beginning to panic. I, I don't know what to say. I can't believe it. I feel sick. I didn't mean to upset you, honey. I shouldn't have even brought it up. Let's just try to go to sleep. It was all the detail I could handle. My mom was quickly submitting to the fog of tranquilizer-induced sleep. As she started snoring, I flipped mindlessly through the channels on the TV. She can't sleep without the TV on, so I learned to sleep with it during her visit. But I couldn't sleep that night. I cried and cried and cried and cried and knew the significance of this confession. She woke up briefly to offer me a Valium. I refused, but I should have taken it and pocketed the bottle. I would be needing it the next 11 months. Happy Jack. 
When I was seven, I had a friend named Happy Jack who lived on a couch in the woods behind my house. He was not an imaginary friend. He was real. And as I remember it, all the neighborhood kids played with him. I don't know if their parents knew, but mine did because my father was a policeman and knew who he was as soon as he heard his nickname. Jack Parlance, a.k.a. Jackie French, a.k.a. Happy Jack. How do you know him, Daddy? Me and my brother and sister asked, excited to have something to talk to him about. He's an ex-con. I guess he served his time if he's living back there in those woods. Happy Jack's apparent criminal record didn't keep us from playing with him every day, and neither did our parents. He was an old man, older than my father with white hair and long, skinny limbs. I don't think I ever saw him standing, but I could tell he was tall because of how long his bones were. Somehow he had his hair shaped into a crew cut. He always wore the same clothes, polyester gray trousers and a pinstripe button-down shirt. Nobody ever asked him how he got his name except for maybe some dumb kid sometime. Happy Jack had the biggest smile I've ever seen, so big it looked like it might hurt. It stretched from ear to ear and showed his long abandoned gums. He smiled in winter. He smiled in summer. He probably smiled when it was raining, but we were inside the house and couldn't see him. I thought all old people were crazy or retarded or at least illiterate because of how other adults talked to them, so I didn't expect much more from Happy Jack aside from a permanent grin. I think my parents sort of used him as an adjunct babysitter. Go play with Happy Jack, they'd tell us if we said we were bored or acted like we wanted attention. And we would merrily go into the woods to his couch by the creek because Happy Jack was always happy to see us. What I Won My first title was Our Little Miss Charlotte. A year earlier, I'd been a runner-up in the Miss Cinderella pageant, which was good for my first time in a pageant. Miss Cinderella was held at a high school that year. Many pageants were held at schools on weekends. And I remember the sparse audience in the auditorium chairs, which included my sister Lily, who was a teenager, and her best friend, Julie Cox. Julie had a large bust for 13 and braces, and an expression I referred to then as an upside-down smile. That was the only way I could make sense at four of what I refer to now as a fake smile. For fun, when I'm under pressure at work or in an awkward social situation, I'll say to whoever is around me, Hey, do you want to see my fake smile? No one ever says no, and you can't help but laugh when you see it. Laugh and feel sad, especially if you know me. I remember the audience as seen from the stage, and oddly, I remember the stage as seen from the audience. The stage with me on it. Two diagonal lines of tiny girls with their toes pointed toward the center of the stage. I later took pageant lessons, but someone must have told me that day the proper placement of the feet. The right heel cradled in the curve of the left foot. Toes at a 45 degree angle. There were about eight girls in my age group. I was second from the left on the end as seen from the audience. 
I remember being on stage and I remember being in the audience, looking at myself on stage. Maybe I got this memory from a picture of the pageant, which I think exists. Lily says that when they announced my name as fourth runner-up, she and Julie started jumping up and down, climbing over the seats and screaming so loud that everybody knew who I was after that. My strongest memory of Miss Cinderella is of Lily and Julie cavorting and jumping like monkeys over rows and rows of auditorium seats from a vantage point just behind them. Of course, I had to have been on the stage for the announcement of the awards, but my memory of the moment is Lily's. The logo for Our Little Miss was a silhouette of a small girl with an upturned nose and almost exactly equal upturned curl in her hair. She was wearing a crown and aside from that, looked almost exactly like me in the silhouette an artist cut in the mall for a fee. Our Little Miss, like Miss Cinderella, was a national pageant. If one placed in the top three at the local level, she could move on to the state competition and then the nationals. It meant a lot of traveling around North and South Carolina, and then the world. By the time I was in Our Little Miss, my mother had me in an array of activities with potential. Baton twirling, gymnastics, ballet, and tap. I wouldn't start jazz until I got a little more mature. I was taking ballet at a school of dance run by a former runner-up in the Miss America pageant, so all of the activities were interconnected. My mother planned it that way. After I won at the local level, it was time to move on to the state competition. In my age group, four to six, there was no talent requirement, which was a plus, since I was and have always been talentless, at least in the traditional sense. I already had an awkward relationship with my body. In that way, I was mature for my age. Most girls don't forget how to use their bodies until puberty. In kindergarten P.E., my eyes would trace the climbing rope to the place where it connected to the stained ceiling. I just looked at it. I didn't understand what I was supposed to do with it. Same thing with the striped horse hurdles. I'd run up to them full of intention and stop. What was the point? Also, how could I be sure that jumping would propel me over to the other side? I couldn't, so I didn't waste my time. I did waste my time staring at the hurdle once I'd run to it and stopped, but I never wasted my time jumping and falling down. Nobody ever tried to make me. The gym teacher would just tell me to jump the hurdle or climb the rope and leave me alone when I didn't. My memories of me in the track hurdle are of just me in the track hurdle. Nobody else as if I weren't even in gym class. No teacher, no kids. Same thing with the rope just me and the long, dirty snake of a rope. My picture was in the paper after I won Our Little Miss North Carolina. On page B1 of the McDowell County News was a picture of me and a sweet smile in the headline, Daughter of a Former Marionite is Crowned Our Little Miss. I'm sure no one in McDowell County had ever heard of the Our Little Miss pageant, but they all knew my mother. My pageant friends. Many of these girls rode the pageant circuit like I did, so I would see them often. A lot of us also competed in other events like baton twirling, commercial auditions, and gymnastics. Ellie was my best pageant friend, or so our mothers told us. 
She had blonde ringlets, a powdery china doll face, and a pug nose, at least during beauty pageants and other competitions, which is the only time I really ever saw her. Her mother bragged that Ellie had tried out for a Hardee's commercial and they loved her, but she was too perfect and they couldn't use her to sell hamburgers and roast beef. My mother uncharacteristically and graciously went along with this lie, so I did too, taking my social cues from her. I have a picture of Ellie from backstage at one of our pageants. It's spooky and surreal how much she looks like a three-foot porcelain doll. I was always a little more flesh, my mother being a summer person and preferring the bathing beauty look for me. I saw Ellie when I was 13 and out of the pageant world. We were at a Quincy Steakhouse all-you-can-eat buffet. I was in my goth stage, and she was apparently in a skin-tight, acid-washed jeans phase, which was not unusual for Charlotte in 1985. She was still in the life, competing mostly in baton twirling contests for teenagers. Turns out Ellie never got fat. In fact, she's quite trim, with suspiciously curvy proportions for a skinny person. I know because I saw a picture of her in a calendar my mother gave me for Christmas two years ago. It was a calendar of cheerleaders for the Carolina Panthers, Charlotte's NFL team. Ellie is also a honeybee for the Charlotte Hornets, the basketball team. I was surprised to learn she's still living the dream and not jaded like me. I'm sure her mother is quite pleased. I had a friend who lived in the nearby town of Shelby. Her name was Haley Beam. Haley was really country, her mom even less sophisticated than mine. When I first saw Haley, I thought she was the prettiest little thing I'd ever seen. My mother thought differently and told me quickly she'd be no competition for me. To my surprise, I placed ahead of her in every pageant we did together. I never got as close to her as I wanted to. It wasn't that she was standoffish maybe just shy and not yet at ease in her chiffon and tiara. I imagine Haley is still living in Shelby right now, fat and washing clothes for five or six kids and some lame-ass redneck. My friend Christy also did cheerleading and jazz dancing with me. She wasn't in any commercials. She had exotic long black hair and short bangs. Her mom was an anorexic. All of the other moms talked about her in front of us girls when she and Christy weren't around. They used feigned concern as justification for condescension and gossiping in the way that grown women often do. Not that it wasn't obvious. Christy's mom looked like she weighed less than her eight-year-old daughter. She couldn't grow her hair long like Christy's and all the color had faded from the hair she did have. Her eyes were sunken in and she looked like she was always mimicking a fish. Her arms just sort of hung there, and she slouched. It was gross. The bathroom at Dance Unlimited was right next to the dance floor. We could hear her puking every time she brought Christy to class. All the kids knew something was wrong with her, but we never would have known the word for it had the mothers not told us. I had just thought it was cancer. I'm grateful for having this living, breathing poster child for anorexia so early on in life. It's part of why I'm such a big fat person today. One other pageant friend was Penny. Penny lived in an apartment complex. 
She had visible bruises. There was a lot of crying and missed competitions. My mother would talk to her mother in hushed tones. Penny had a younger sister who was almost never around. Once my mother sent me over to their apartment to play. It was terrible. They all acted nervous. The father came downstairs and barked at us, and Penny's mother drove me home early. Penny is one of the girls who is probably dead by now. It makes me really sad to think about her. The Mother's Pageant Almost every pageant included activities for the mothers as part of the overall cost. These activities were usually a welcome breakfast, an evening cocktail hour, and what was known as the Mother's Pageant. It was a tradition, although I don't know how it started. The mother's pageant was usually the first night we were all there. The moms would all get dressed up as ugly as they could, like it was Halloween. They would color their hair green, black out a tooth with grease pencil, put their hair in curlers, and dress in their homeliest house coat or pajamas. Sometimes they went too far. One year, one lady put Vaseline in her hair to make it look greasy. She didn't know you couldn't wash Vaseline out that easy. It was a big crisis. All the moms wanted to show how ugly they could be, but only on Ugly Mother's Night. Confessions of a Child Beauty Queen Written and read by A.H. Weatherman Produced by Roman Mars for Invisible Inc., on KALW in San Francisco, and on the web at InvisibleIncRadio.com. We called Roman up to talk about this piece and found out, among other things like how he does it all on his off hours and gets paid next to nothing, hello, it's public radio, we found out how he came to discover this Weatherman piece. Well, there's an alternative, you know, lefty commie bookstore here that I like <laughs> an awful lot called Modern Times, and, uh, and I just go there every couple of weeks and they have a zine rack and it was just sitting there on the shelf and it it hasn't it's nicely packaged uh it has a, a picture of her as a young girl in a beauty pageant and I just picked it up uh walked home with it and read it on the way home and as soon as I got home I emailed just the email address on on the zine I was just hoping that she would be into it and because it was so private I was a little worried about that one of the things I really liked about this piece was the the contrast in what she was saying and how she was saying it. Because what she was saying was so emotional and packed such a big wallop, and how she was saying it was so flat and dry. And I'm wondering if that was something that you wanted or if that was just something that happened. She was so she was very nervous and shaking a little bit, and uh, I really kind of liked that. I thought the emotion came through more because she wasn't trying to oversell it. And so it became much more of an honest piece. Like she wasn't really, you know, trying to emote for you. She was just telling her story and it, and then it came through really clearly to me when she did it that way. Another contrast you have going in the piece is sort of the childlike nature of some of the music, but the very adult nature of the story. It's accompanying. Um, what was your thought process when you put that together? Oh, Toykestra uh, is uh, it's sort of it started out as an art project. It was it's a all female band, and they play 
uh, toys. <laughs> so it's all like, uh, ca- you know, little Casio keyboards uh, but in, and little, you know, shaker toys and whatever. And they, they go to thrift stores and find these things. And they're a local band uh, out of Oakland. So I've seen them a few times and I was really taken with the, with the music. And I guess I find children's music kind of creepy. Uh, a lot of the time and so when this was about childhood and, uh, and about a horrible uh, things about childhood and I thought that putting this music that was you know made from toys um, I just felt like it worked like you got a different uh, effect from those two the juxtaposition of those two do you see similarities between the zine culture and the radio culture yeah there's um well there's poverty which is pretty common between the two and there's this sort of this love of doing (laughs) something that that makes it so you just want to do it It, there's no monetary reward there's no anything and there's not even a notion that somebody is necessarily hearing you I mean you put something on the radio you you hope that you have your thousands of listeners and or tens of thousands of listeners with any luck and um, and that's great but it's a very one-way communication it's uh and the same with the zine. You you produce all this stuff, and uh, you you do it on a shoestring. You don't you don't do it for for anything except for the love of doing it. And then you put it out there, and you rarely get much response back. You get a few emails or a few letters or whatever, um, but it's mainly for the love of doing it. And that's um, that's really a great thing. And I found that to be a, a cohesive. You, know, you when I talk to people to bring them in to do the radio show, they totally get it like right away. The the writing voice for zines is often a very one to one communication. There's that when a good zine works, you feel like they're writing it just to you in a lot of ways, and uh, I think that that's successful radio works in in much the same way. Do you ever feel like you're ever going to run out of you know, great work to put on the radio? Or do you feel like there's just this deep pool of untapped talent out there that is just waiting for you to come along? Oh, I, I never feel like I'm going to run out of stuff. The uh, The ideas aren't difficult to come by or the material isn't difficult to come by. The hard part is just getting it done. Roman Mars, producer of Invisible Ink on KALW in San Francisco. You can listen to more Invisible Ink on Invisible Ink Radio, all one word, dot com. Coming up, how to cut your annual food budget down to $6. Yes, $6, provided you know where to dive, dumpster-wise. Here's a little something from Mice Parade. The album is Collaborations. I'm Gwen Maxi, and you're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. Stay with us. Thank you. 
If you're just joining us, welcome to ReSound, a showcase of audio stories from around the world curated by the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxai. So it's no secret that New York has a garbage problem. And frankly, who doesn't? But in the case of The Dumpsters of New York, a piece by Matt Power for PRI's The Next Big Thing on WNYC, one man's problem is another man's smorgasbord. My name is Matt, and I eat trash. I became a dumpster diver a couple summers ago when a friend of mine showed me this great bakery dumpster out in Brooklyn. Every night around midnight, a guy would push a rack out of the truck bay that was piled high with all sorts of bread. You'd have slabs of ciabatta, roasted garlic baguettes, kalamata olive sourdough, and just dump them still hot into this dumpster. There was another dumpster next to it that was just filled with uncooked dough, and for hours afterwards it would rise up and lift the lid off of the dumpster like some blob from a B-horror movie. On any given night in New York, there's enough food lying out on the street to make paying for it seem utterly ridiculous. We set off from the Lower East Side on beat-up old bikes. Some people had messenger bags, some people had milk crates strapped to their handlebars to bring the booty home at the end of the night. There was so much that the only way you could possibly describe it would be... Shamefully abundant. More food than you could ever possibly eat. Outside I got a case of dried beans. Some of them I gave away. I met some guy dumpster at Gristidi's. I offered him some beans and he offered me some chicken. How often do you go dumpster diving? A couple nights a week. I can usually spend about an hour, hour and a half a night and get enough food for a couple days. What percentage of your meals do you get out of the trash? Say about 95% to 100%. Uh-huh. Well, how much money do you spend? You don't spend any money on food. I think this year on food, I spent a total of $6, um, $3 a piece on two energy drinks for one night when I had to stay awake all night. That was my complete food budget for the year. You got to understand this. Adam is doing this because he wants to, not because he has to. For these guys, it's, it's a choice, not a necessity. It, it's, it's almost a game, a game to see how much stuff you can get for free when the pizza place pulls down its shutters and leaves a bag of slices on the sidewalk, where to get an unlimited supply of day-old bagels, when the health food store tosses out all its past-date yogurt. You never use the term expired when you're dumpster diving. What street is this? Do we necessarily want to put this on record for like... No, I'm just putting it in my notebook. They guard the locations of their dumpstering spots as jealously as secret fishing holes or buried treasure. I have a photocopied map with all the good dumpsters, descriptions. Anyone coming into town from somewhere else can, can get hooked up right away and not have to worry about finding something to eat. And it works both ways. Whenever these guys travel to another city, there's a sort of dumpster underground that lets them know where the best spots are to find something to eat. Madison, Wisconsin had great dumpstering there. There was a, an Oddwalla juice dumpster. Minneapolis is really good vegan um, sandwiches to fortune cookies. Little Rock has all right dumpsters, but in Oakland, there's um, Cliff Bar Factory. In Santa Cruz, there's this um, soy company. On any given night, you can pull out marinated tofu, chocolate soy milk, tempeh, and all, all soy dogs and all that stuff. Maybe this makes them sound like the kind of people who would go to Seattle and protest at WTO, Sure, they do that too, but that's not the whole story. For people who don't pay for their food, they also have pretty expensive tastes. See, the, the sushi, that's, that's a big, big plus. 
It's so awesome being able to ha give people chocolate, <laughs> wrapped up chocolate. We're all over Portland getting caviar, biscottis, cinnamon almonds. Their culinary preferences sort of reflect their ambivalence towards society. In fact, to them it's a logical reaction to the wastefulness of modern society. But it's not as though they have any kind of unified front. Their opinions on what they do are as diverse as the contents of the dumpsters themselves. I see myself as something that's outside of capitalism. Mm. I wouldn't call it that. With dumpster diving, we're extremely dependent on capitalism. Um, we're all the scavengers and bottom feeders of that society. This really goes much deeper than digging through the trash for something to eat. Uh, it's about the choices that you make in life, politically, even what you want to eat. For example, a lot of the dumpster divers that I met were vegans. Veganism is where you don't eat any animal products, be it meat, dairy, fish, anything with eggs in it, anything like that. But this isn't garden variety veganism. In fact, it's a sort of new denomination where if you get something from the trash, you enter a new moral universe. If it's from the trash, it's not like uh, you're paying for it and supporting it with your money. People call it freeganism. So an example would be they're rifling through the Trader Joe's dumpster and they find a carton of eggs and they're stoked because deep down inside they love eggs but <laughs> they don't want to buy eggs. So that's free. Remember now, this is a new denomination, so the law is not yet set in stone. Is dumpster food kosher? Um, I mean, according to the laws of Judaism, I think if it's made kosher, it's kosher. I mean, I don't think the dumpster breaks any laws of kosher. Yeah. You're not kosher anyway, so you don't really worry about it. I don't keep kosher. All right, some philosophical ruminations might be a bit of a stretch. Still, there's an unwritten ethical code that they all follow. If you care about where you're dumpstering and want to ever come back, you're going to leave the place neat. You're going to leave all the bags tied up when you're done. Otherwise, people might start locking up the dumpsters. Who knows? Not all dumpster divers are following lofty ideals. I don't really, I dumpster just because I don't have money to pay for food. I mean, I'm not vegetarian either. I don't really like vegetables. Sure, they have maps and they know where the best spots to go are, but sometimes you don't find anything. It's hit or miss, so when you win, you really feel like you hit the jackpot. Like at this fancy French pastry shop we went to in the East Village. Yo! What are it's we looking lemon. at here? It's lemon cream pie. There were slightly dented tarts, uh, pies that were a little bit flat, eclairs with a, a few coffee grounds that needed to be brushed of off. We got raspberries, we got strawberries, we got blackberries. There's something incredible about scarfing down this $10 pastry that you got for free. It's delicious. Oh my god. It's radical. This is like the best dessert I've tasted in months. I come here once a week or so when I want to treat myself. <laughs> Still, there was, there was something sad about the whole endeavor. It isn't the humiliation of being stared at by people as you eat out of the trash. It, it stemmed from the, the vastness of this, this river of trash that was being produced by the city and this, this sense of the enormous gulf between you and the whole rest of society when you decide to dive in. There was just so much trash. 
and we knew we were never going to be able to rescue it all. So at the end of the night's rounds, we returned. Everyone came back down to the Lower East Side, and we went to the squat. Is this the place? It's a sort of a, a dumpstered building, an old abandoned school building on the Bowery that they've taken over and moved into. This is a kind of dark. quite dark hallway. Got a flashlight? They've pirated electricity from the building next door. There's a clock, there's a stereo, a record player, tape deck, dual tape deck, recorder. We have a toaster, we have a blender. So what are you making right now, Deadwell? Making a smoothie. Out of what? Bananas. It's really comfortable here. It's This is the main room. They've made a home for themselves, and it seems like the kind of existence that could go on forever. I guess I could just keep going, you know, like old tramps out in the west. And I know I, and I could do that, but I don't know if that's the kind of life I want to live. That's Paul, remember, the one who doesn't like vegetables? And then my mom bugs me about whether I'm going to settle down. I'm not 18 anymore, I'm not 20, I'm not 22, you know, like I'm getting older. But like after I'm 25, it's just like, I'm not like a kid anymore, you know, for some reason, I don't know. Trying to hang out with people that like have jobs and work and like they can go out and do things and you know you can't, you still want to hang out with them, but like all of a sudden like the fact that you don't have money and they do is like a very clear line. It's almost like, well, I can't really hang out with you. Can't we just hang out under a bridge, <laughs> you know? Like, can't we just sit on a street corner? Paul may decide this isn't for him. He may feel too disconnected from his friends to keep on dumpster diving. But for the other people who embrace it wholeheartedly, it seems to work. They've created a sort of community outside beyond the frontiers of normal society that everyone else lives in, in which they take care of each other. And that seems to be enough. Why do they do what they do? Is it out of disappointment? Is it out of hope? Who knows? What I do know is that they've found a way to make it in the world, and it's by living off of what the rest of us have thrown away. Is that chicken? Yeah, not mushrooms. No, that looks like a bit of chicken there. Oh, really? Oh, uh, no, that is definitely... That's like clam strips. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> no, this is definitely chicken I'm eating. This is the first yep. time I've eaten chicken in like two years. That was Matt Power for PRI's The Next Big Thing. All right, all right. My gut reaction, no pun intended, upon first hearing this piece, I thought, hot pizza? Crisp biscotti? Fresh berries? Odwalla bars? Which dumpster is first? Think of the savings. Goodbye, Jewel. Hello, Jewels. Then I thought, ugh, what about the germs? Don't these guys ever get sick? And lastly, I just couldn't help it. I thought, do their mothers know what they're doing? Thank you.
At the Minnesota State Fair, you can get 24 different kinds of food on a stick. 24. Oh, you have your usual suspects, corn dogs, cotton candy, candy apples, chocolate-covered bananas, bomb pops, and all kinds of kebabs. To say nothing of turkey, taffy, pineapple, pork chops, Belgian waffles, walleye, and my favorite, of course, gefilte stick. Why didn't I think of that? In fact, the Minnesota State Fair is full of the unexpected, but none so unexpected as the annual Princess K of the Milky Way competition. This candidate is from region number one. She hails from Carlstad, Minnesota. Mom and dad are Dennis and Debbie. And she has two brothers and two sisters. Attending Northwestern College in St. Paul and plans to graduate from Northwestern and a degree in elementary education specializing in learning disabilities. From region number one, Rachel Ann Klopp. Princess Kay of the Milky Way is the official goodwill ambassador of the Minnesota dairy industry. She's between 18 and 21, and she represents one of 11 regions in a Miss America-esque pageant in which, during the course of competition, she has to do numerous things, including finish this sentence. To me, the dairy to industry me, the dairy is... To is a family. F is for every dairy farm family that works together as a team to accomplish a task. To me, the dairy industry is a tall, cold glass of milk chasing down freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. It's a double dip, one scoop of ice cream served with one scoop of laughter. It's the and because of all of these reasons, I can honestly say that I am proud. Proud to represent an industry that is really worth representing, the dairy industry. How long have you been preparing for this? Well, you know, it's something that every dairy farmer's daughter dreams of for a long time, and I don't know if you can actually prepare prepare for it. It's it's kind of life as you go on the farm, and it's I've uh, participated in the farm work my entire life, and it's taught me a lot of good values, responsibility, maturity, all at a young age. And I think uh, indirectly it prepares you for this. Have you been watching Princess Kay's at the State Fair since the time you were a tot? I certainly have. Since five years of age, I visited the Butter Booth, and I've always picked out the, the young lady from my region. And I've always pointed at her and, and hoped to be in her shoes someday. By the way, the term Princess Kay doesn't really have any significance other than the fact that it rhymes with Milky Way. The winner, of course, gets not only the crown and the glory, but the privilege of having her bust carved out of an 85-pound block of butter, which is roughly the size of a file drawer. The carving itself takes place during the fair in the dairy barn in a refrigerated, rotating glass case in the middle of July. There, a young woman sits as her portrait is done in butter. Each day, another bust of one of the 11 finalists. At the end, there are 11 busts rotating in the refrigerated glass case in the dairy barn in the middle of July. Move over, Madame Tussauds. When I was there and the winner looked at her butter likeness for the first time, she said, quote, I don't think my complexions ever look that smooth. To me, it looked just like butter.
That's it for tonight. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Katia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering help. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org slash resound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for Resound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. Resound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Good night. Thank you.